This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan Moore, and I am coming to you on Friday, March the 10th, 2023. Today's message is from part four of our journey through the book of Colossians, Alive in Christ. And this is week two, Killing the Zombie. Two weeks ago, we talked about the all-important meaning of faith. You know, not, not just faith to believe in the first place, but the purpose of faith as people who do believe. Now, our big takeaway was that faith, through the lens of the great emphasis of the New Testament and the objective lens of the human experience, is that faith is not about how we move God to action on our behalf, right? Although that's almost all, well, in many, many times that's what it's characterized. You see, faith isn't how we convince God to change the nature of our circumstances. Rather, faith is how we open our hearts and minds for God to change our nature in the midst of our circumstances. And we ask this question, what if faith isn't primarily about what we want God to do, but rather faith is about us understanding, believing, and experiencing the goodness of what God has already done. In the first two chapters of Colossians, up through the intro into chapter 3, this is exactly what Paul has been describing. What God has already done, what is already true of us in Christ, the hope we already have by faith. And now, arriving at today's text, Paul is going to shift gears, changing his focus from what is already true of us internally to how this then must inevitably change how we live externally. Simply put, today's scripture proclaims, Christian, believer, you've been made new, and Christ is your life. So live like it. Paul's going to explore this from two perspectives. Next Sunday, we'll see the positive perspective, what it looks like for us to clothe ourselves with the nature and character of Christ. Today, Paul comes at this, though, from the negative perspective, describing the kind of life that we have put behind us because it's no longer who we are. Over the past few weeks, several times I've used a zombie metaphor. You know, the zombie being the dead person we used to be. Our flesh, right? The New Testament concept of our flesh that follows us around, lying to us, trying to convince us that it's still who we are. And we're going to take this one more step as now Paul is telling us that we must kill the zombie. All right? So we're going to read the whole passage and then we'll go through it. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, where Paul powerfully says, Put to death, therefore, Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. For here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
But Christ is all and is in all. My friends, this is a huge and clear charge when it comes to moving away from the brokenness of our old nature, we must show no mercy. All right, we're going to take this apart really by the different topics that we, that we see here. First of all, um, ver- the beginning of verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. In um, verse 8, he says, But now you must rid yourselves of all things such as these. Okay. Friends, just to start, we need some context here. Paul is writing to people living in the pagan Roman culture of the first century. This scripture speaks to all of us, but what Paul describes as the life you once lived isn't necessarily the life many of you, right, those of us alive right now, this isn't necessarily the life that you lived before you came to faith. You see, first century Roman society was just brutal. Life was cheap. Love was scarce, murder and abuse was commonplace, especially the abuse of women and children. Deceit was the status quo, sexual immorality was unrestrained, exploitive, abusive, and it was everywhere. Now, we can find this level of brokenness in parts of our culture today, because it's not everywhere. But if you were to describe the worst examples Um, the most egregious examples of sin, brokenness, and suffering in Western society today, that would pretty much describe the totality of society all the time in the first century Roman world. In his letter to Titus, Paul described life like this. He said, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy being hated, and hating one another. This is my point. Friends, there are voices in our culture, often a blend of political and religious voices, that are constantly telling us that this level of pervasive, abject brokenness describes the whole of our society now, especially the parts of our society that are made up of certain identifiable communities of people. And my friends, this is simply not true. Over the years, I've had the privilege to to become friends with many people with whom I might disagree. I would disagree, sometimes even strongly, when it comes to many political, social, and even moral issues. And yet, there is no envy, hatred, or malice between these people and myself. And I found many of these people to be kind, generous, servant-hearted, and loving. Now, guys, make no mistake— Our culture is full of pain, suffering, deception, selfishness, pride, and the great brokenness of sin. You know, as Jesus said, the wages of sin is death. And and not just the idea, right, of hell, but the wages of sin is death right now. The goal of the enemy and the end result of the human condition is heartbreak and suffering, and devastation. If, if you listened to last week's message, you know we have seen this in our community here in Colorado, like just, just right now. And yet there is a narrative in our culture that we don't see in Scripture. And it is the idea of us against them. The idea that we're fighting against people who are evil, enemies of what is rightfully ours, who propagate sin and brokenness, 
And it's then so easy to broadly apply that label to categories of people. But in stark contrast, in the New Testament, specifically the book of Acts, the brokenness of our world is not presented as an enemy to be fought against, but as enslaved people who need to be set free. And we, as disciples of Jesus, we are bringers of this freedom and hope by realizing that we are now part of God's new creation. We have been rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son that God loves, right? The new way, the new age, right, of grace, mercy, and the goodness of Christ. And as we live this out as a redeemed community of hope, in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit, people will respond to this hope and choose to also enter into the light of the hope that we bear. And one person, one life at a time, that hope grows and spreads, transforming a society from the inside out and through the power of love and redemption not the power of condemnation and law. My friends, that is how the church transformed the Roman world in the first three centuries. And it's how the church will still, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, bring transformation into our culture today. So this is key. When Paul gives us examples of sin's devastation, he's not doing so to condemn the surrounding world, but to remind us as believers of who we now are and the brokenness from which we've been set free. At the end of Romans 6, Paul exclaims, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. And so now to the Colossians, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So let's go deeper here. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Note the focus. What is the way the enemy seeks to sabotage you? What is going on in your heart, in your soul, that is no longer who you are in Christ? The examples in verse 5 all relate to sexual sin and brokenness. And this is present in almost every, if not every, description of the human condition that we find in the New Testament. The devastation of sexual brokenness cannot be overstated. And so we need to really consider the core issue that Paul is getting at here. Now, friends, sexual immorality, that first phrase, is a broad description of any actions that distort God's gift of sexuality. Impurity and lust speaks to the inner attitudes and the ways of thinking that lead to sexual immorality. Evil desires and greed speaks to the breadth of how hearts are corrupted by lust, like a poison that causes us to crave more of what is killing us. Lastly, Paul identifies the breadth of sexual brokenness for what it is. It's idolatry, where our desire for unfettered and self-centered gratification becomes what we worship. And by the way, all right, you know this, lust and self-serving gratification isn't limited to the world of sexuality. 
Now, guys, we could talk about this topic for a long time, but if we look across the New Testament and assess the world into, into which Paul wrote, some important themes emerge about the core issues of sexual sin. First, it is all about self-gratification. Sexual immorality places the desires of self above the humanity and God-given value of another person. And it's worth noting that just because cheap sex may be consensual doesn't mean that it still isn't all about self, and it doesn't take away the damage done. And by the way, as well, consensual cheap sex is rarely truly consensual. It favors the person in power, even when consent is given. Sexual immorality also objectifies it devalues people on both sides of whatever the sexual dynamic may be. It hardens the heart by robbing and distorting the human dignity given by God. This is one of the many reasons pornography is so devastating. Also, sexual immorality victimizes. It is an abuse of power, not always, but almost always, by men. Sexual immorality also tends to blame its brokenness on the promiscuity of women rather than confronting the hearts and attitudes of men, if not excusing and in some places even celebrating the behavior of men. Finally, friends, this is important for the church to hear in the midst of so much current dialogue about the immorality of our world. Right? So friends, I say this humbly, but I ask you to hear me. The vast majority of brokenness, suffering, objectification, and victimization resulting from sexual sin happens within the heterosexual world. And the notion that homosexuality or the LGBTQ community, that they are the greatest threat of sexual immorality facing our country, friends, that is just not the case. Yes, of course, there is sexual unhealth and brokenness within the LGBTQ community, just as there is throughout every community. But to make homosexuality the primary litmus test of, se litmus test of sexual morality is to obscure the profound warning that Scripture makes to us, to the church. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Put to death the impurity, the lust, the greed, the idolatry, that may be present in your heart. Because, friends, we all know that the consuming fire of sexual sin, it can happen within marriages, including Christian marriages, and it is all too present within the church. <sighs> Moving on, because <laughs> Paul is just getting started. right? A little later he says, But now you must also rid yourselves of things such as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And don't lie to each other. Okay, again, these all share in common what happens when we allow pride to run rampant, when our hearts are obsessed with gratifying and defending self, directing our anger and self-defense onto people or groups of people rather than dealing with our own fear and our own sin. And emphatically, Paul says, no more. You must rid yourself of such things. And this implies a highly intentional set of actions. Okay, and guys, here over the next, um, the next few minutes, and actually the rest of this message, I'm going to quote from time to time from one of my current favorite theologians, N.T. Wright. 
And here he says this, when a tide of anger is felt, it must be dealt with as the alien intruder it really is and turned out of the house as having no right to be there at all, much less giving orders. And guys, this is not easy, but it must be our focus, relying upon God's grace within us. And Paul's description here is pretty exhaustive. It talks about anger, right? the continuous state of just smoldering bitterness or hatred. Rage, when, some, when something you know, that we're angry about actually breaks out in angry deeds and words. Malice, right? Malice it's, it's, isn't just evil, but evil intended to cause harm and slander. This is speech which puts malice into effect, speech with, that intentionally harms another person. An interesting note here, the Greek word here for slander is blasphemia, speech which, speech which dishonors God himself. I mean, think of that, to slander, to lie about, or put down another person um, who, regardless of who they are, is still created in God's image. This is equated here with speech that attacks God himself. And then Paul says, filthy language from your lips. And guys, this isn't just about saying, air quotes, bad words. Right? Maybe not even mostly. You know, Filthy language connotes speech that hurts both the speaker and the hearer. And the emphasis is speech that seeks to lower the value of another person. As an example, you can find many communities of profession Christians who may never let slip a single four-letter word, right, or at least where anybody can hear them. But at the same place, you know, where gossip, dishonesty, and slander is not uncommon. And such communities are far closer to the Scripture's warning here than someone whose speech might just be a little bit salty. But then Paul saves the big one for last, focusing on the great damage caused by our speech. And he concludes with, do not lie. Do not lie to each other. Simply put, intentional dishonesty for the purpose either of advancing or defending ourselves, is incompatible with our new nature in Christ. Listen, we all struggle with honesty at times. And we should take note here that Paul lists it right along with the clearly destructive actions of anger, rage, malice, slander, and rampant sexual immorality. Now, guys, books have been written on the ethics of honesty. And if there are ever dynamics when some form of dishonesty, even if passively, is the right and actually ethical thing to do. Right? Are there times that unfettered honesty all the time would violate the greatest ethical lens, which is love? Now, I'm not going to make that argument or that determination, but this is something we must all wrestle with before God and the Holy Spirit's work in our conscience. And I think really the key questions are, am I truly being honest with God and honest with myself and am I truly surrendered to God in this situation? Is my choice whether or not to be honest an expression of my new nature in Christ? Or is it really just still the self-deception of my old nature, the zombie I'm seeking to kill? Now, there's much more that could be discussed there, but we've got to move on. And we now turn to the hinge statement in the whole passage where Paul says, because of these things, 
the wrath of God is coming. Now, I'm reading from the NIV, and some of the ancient manuscripts also add, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are disobedient, right? Or something along that line. Your translation may have a form of this. The emphasis is that God's wrath is not arbitrary, and it is not unjust. It is a response to the actions of evil that harms and devalues God's good creation. Now, this is an impossibly huge topic that I can barely address right now, other than to say this. My friends, sin has a consequence. The evil, suffering, and brokenness of the human condition that has rejected the lordship and goodness of God will bring a response from God. And as humanity, we are accountable to God for our choices and our actions. Now, in Christ, we are free from the fear of judgment, but we are not released from our accountability to God for our actions in this life. My friends, hear this. Scripture never minimizes the great devastation of sin. And as God's people, we must never minimize the devastation of sin. Sin damages and ravages God's beautiful and precious creation. And time and again, Scripture tells us that God will respond. Now, that said, honest people who love the Lord and hold a high view of Scripture can debate the nature of God's wrath, what it will look like, what it does look like, whether it is punitive or restorative, and how it works with the related, but importantly, not synonymous concepts of final judgment and hell. But the consequence of rejecting and violating God's lordship and his goodness is no trivial matter, which Paul makes very clear. Going on now in verse 7, Paul says, you used to walk in these ways, right? This used to be the ongoing normal pattern of your behavior in the life that you once lived. In other words, this is no longer who you are. You used to live this way. You used to be in bondage to this way of thinking, but no more. In Romans 6.2, Paul exclaims, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I mean, think of the image of a toddler who has just learned to walk. Right? It used to crawl, but now its nature is to walk, even to run. And what would happen if this child, after a period of time, was, would tried to crawl again or was told that they had to crawl again? But it wouldn't just be inconvenient, it would be profoundly damaging because their bodies are no longer designed to crawl. Likewise, when we, as disciples who have died to sin, when we continue to violate the character and the nature of Christ, when we fail to love, we are doing something unnatural. And it harms not only those around us, it harms us, often principally. It's like we're taking our new lives that are bright, loving, and vibrantly alive in Christ and clothing them in the dead corpse of who we used to be. And friends, that's strong imagery, but this is the power of the emphasis that Scripture brings. And so now back to verse 9, Paul says, So don't do that. Stop it. Don't dress yourself any longer in those old filthy rags. Because God has dressed you in a new change of clothes. Verse 9, do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Ah, guys, there's so much here. We've got to be concise. This is one of the great Pauline themes in all of the New Testament, that in Christ the old is gone and the new has come. You see, we tend to mistranslate the word here for self, making it far more individualistic than it really is. We are now, rather, part of God's new creation family. We are citizens of the community of heaven. So why would we behave differently, right? They don't behave like this in heaven. <laughs> but the big thought here, guys, is that our new self is good. The old stereotype, unfortunately reinforced by parts of Christian culture, is that becoming a Christian is like taking, taking off the fun and free self and putting on the straitjacket of religious legalism. But the opposite is true. <coughs> Excuse me. It is in our new self that our full and vibrant humanity emerges as the shackles of our old broken humanity are thrown off. It is in Christ that human beings can actually be what God intended us to be, alive, free, healthy, joyful, content, fulfilled, loving, and dependent only upon the life of our Creator. You know, note how the old self is defined by its, what does it say? Its practices, while the new self is defined by its source. As part of God's new creation community, our new self, who we truly are, is constantly being renewed in our understanding and experience of the very image of God. Our old self was defined by our behavior, while our new self is defined by our identity. And when we live in the good of our new identity, it will lead to the transformation of our behavior. You know, when I was a kid, we had this saying, if you squeeze an orange, you get orange juice. Meaning that when life squeezes us, what's really inside, that's what comes out. And friends, when we live with Christ as our identity and our source, when the reality of life squeezes us, it will be Jesus that comes out. Paul concludes by addressing what might be one of the greatest devastating markers of sin and brokenness in all of the human condition, proclaiming that in Christ there is now no division. Verse 11, here, right? That's everything he's been talking about here in this new life in Christ. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, and I need to add, in the parallel passage in Galatians 3.28, Paul also says, nor is there male and female, but Christ is all and is in all. So Paul lists some of the greatest, Paul here lists some of the greatest societal, religious, and cultural divisions of the first century world. And he could have listed many more. You see, the ancient world was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, division, and exclusion so ingrained that it just seemed normal. And tragically, this is still true today. And even though we would say our world, specifically our country, has come a long way since past generations, guys, we, we must recognize that both the root and the effect of prejudice, division, sexism, 
racism, and hatred still contaminates our culture. And if we are honest about it, that's if we're honest about it, it is all too present within parts of Christian culture and, and, and within the church. And so it is with stunning clarity that Paul challenges this status quo of all human history, declaring that such divisions, whatever their root, that these have become irrelevant in Christ. Such divisions are ultimately a denial of the creation of humankind in the image of God. Now, this isn't to say that there aren't differences among people. Of course there are, and almost always these are good. And what it is to say is that differences such as nationality, race, color, language, social standing, gender, and many, many others, these must now be regarded as irrelevant when it comes to the question of love, honor, kindness, and respect that the nature and character of Christ demands be shown to all people and groups of people. You see, the exclamation point here is that it's not just that in Christ all these false divisions must be put aside. Even more so, Paul says, that Christ is all and is in all. In fact, this calls us back to the profound passage we wrestled with in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 where Paul exhaustively declared the presence and supremacy of Christ in all things. Because this is true, practically, if we take the nature and character of Christ seriously, in Christ there can be no barriers between human beings. N.T. Wright puts it powerfully when he observes, Whenever, wherever one looks, wherever one looks, one sees Christ. When an elderly person is ignored, Christ is ignored. When a child is bullied or snubbed, Christ is snubbed. When a poor or a colored person is mistreated, Christ is mistreated. When a community of people is feared or hated, Christ is feared and hated. Church, we must not allow the prejudices and divisive thinking of our old humanity because there are many examples, and they can be subtle, but we must not allow these to distort the new humanity of the new creation community into which we have now been born. Whew. Friends, that's a lot. And I actually had another thought, but I'm going to punt that to the beginning of next week. As Paul changes his focus from the old way of life that has gone, right? that's no longer who we are, to the new source and the new kind of life that now has fully come. Church, I love you. Thank you for tracking with me um, on the, the recordings of these messages. If you ever have any feedback for me on how I can do a better job with this, um, I'm always up to receiving that. Um, I'm, I'm my, my, having a little trouble, time to, uh, trouble talking today. I've been a little bit under the weather. Hopefully you were able to understand me. But guys, I love you. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And I look forward to seeing you back here again next Sunday.